0: Welcome to Leave Your Mark, where I explore the influences that have shaped the lives of our incredible guests. These are the stories of lives worth talking about. Follow me on Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, or link up with me on my Facebook fan page at Scott G. Winston. My goal is to create a community of people who take every opportunity to live high-performing lives. Before I get started on today's podcast, I want to take a moment to connect you with my sponsor, ReconditioningHQ.com. Reconditioning is a method and language of integrated practice. It brings the worlds of therapy and conditioning together and helps them become more powerful and more practical. If you live in one or both of these worlds or you use the services of a therapist or conditioning coach, you know that sometimes they don't see eye to eye. They aren't on the same page. Reconditioning provides a time-tested process for aligning these two worlds and creating impactful solutions to performance problems. Follow them at Reconditioning HQ on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or become a member of their Facebook group, Reconditioning HQ Revolution, and join the Reconditioning Revolution. Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm Scott Livingston, and today I have the privilege of speaking with John Berardi. John is a Canadian-American entrepreneur best known as the co-founder of Precision Nutrition the world's largest nutrition coaching, education, and software company. Professionally, he's an exercise physiologist and nutritional biochemist, as well as a certified strength and conditioning specialist. He's also the founder of Changemaker Academy, devoted to helping would-be changemakers turn their passion for health and fitness into a powerful purpose and wildly successful career. John has advised organizations like Apple, Equinox, Nike, and Titleist, as well as teams and athletes like the San Antonio Spurs, the Carolina Panthers, U.S. Open champion, Sloan Stevens, and UFC champion, George St. Pierre. He was named by GreatList.com as one of the 20 smartest coaches in the world and 100 most influential people in health and fitness. John is also a devoted husband and father of four children. He's been a massive thought leader in the world of human performance, and I'm honored to have him on the show today. Welcome, John. Oh,
1: thanks for having me, Scotty. Great to, great to be here. Great to talk to your audience and great
0: to spend some time with you. Yeah, you know what's wonderful about this podcast, which I started the journey on about a year ago, is there's a whole host of different people, many of whom I've already interviewed, who and you are definitely one of those people who have a great deal of uh, respect for. But I think because we're all busy in the things that we do all the time, the opportunity to just sit down and chat with people that you really have a lot of respect for and and are interested in is really rare, and it doesn't happen that often anymore. So thank you for taking the time.
1: Well, yeah, you're welcome, and thanks for having me. And 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 I totally agree with what you just said. And, and this this might even be lesson number one for everyone listening. You know, I I had this moment as we were talking about before we press record. Uh, this winter, uh, we were fortunate enough, our family to spend it down in Scottsdale, Arizona. We've been threatening to get out of the Canadian cold for a long time now, and and this year we finally did it. Um, we've had infants basically in our life since, uh, for 10 years now, right. Cause we have four. And so our youngest just is two and a half. So we're like, Oh, maybe, maybe we're at a stage where, you know, we can try something like this, which I don't know for a family of four little kids, like this is a great adventure, <laughs> you know, but the point <laughs> being like, we, um, you know, spent the winter in, in Scottsdale and I got to sit down with Stu McMillan who has been on the show. I got to sit down with, uh Mark Verstegen, who's been on the show um honestly we I had a few lunches and dinners with these guys where after I left, I was like man i I texted them, and I'm like i I didn't even realize how badly I needed that, <laughs> but I needed that. You know what I mean? So uh, to your point, you know we get busy with the things we're pursuing and and we fail to connect with some peers uh, who we do really respect and also enjoy their company mm-hmm. and, and when we get that, we're like, man. Like I, I needed that. So it was actually just a great reminder for me, like how can I be more proactive about doing these kind of things? Mm-hmm. Um, because
0: they really do, uh, you know, to use the old cliche, sort of fill my cup. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Well, there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of stuff to unpack in, um, in your world, which I want to spend some time doing, but I do want to r- roll back to, you know, John Berardi as a little boy, what was life like growing up? And, an offshoot of that, what did you really dream of, of being when you were a little guy?
1: Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, at least my personal narrative kind of centers around being part of an immigrant family. Mm. You know, my parents were both born in Italy um, and uh, they emigrated to the US. Uh, they, oddly enough, they're from the same town, but they were a couple years' age difference and they didn't really know each other mm. um, and they met in the States. And um, so, you know, growing up, uh, we didn't have much money, right? My parents uh, didn't have any education. Um, they came to the U.S. at the time when a lot of Italians were coming to the U.S. It was after the big Irish migration and the Italians came and, you know, and uh, and at the time, Italians weren't looked favorably upon, you know, as happens, right? So the last round of immigrants comes over and they feel rooted and then, the next round comes and they're not happy about those new ones coming, even though they were the new ones just a minute ago, you know, and um, that sort of traces the entire history of the U S doesn't it? But, um, but uh, you know, so we, so they didn't have much education. uh, They didn't speak English very well. So there weren't a lot of opportunities. So, you know, I mean, we grew up quote unquote poor, you know, so uh, I have one brother and, you know, we grew up in a, little apartment over a garage. And uh, so the idea of sort of big dreams and stuff like that wasn't really a thing. Hmm. Uh, You know, my parents worked a lot of jobs, and that's what I grew up doing. And if I ever wanted money for stuff, I had to have a lot of jobs, which I did. Um, And uh, I mean, you know, the, uh, like, especially in my experience in immigrant families, uh, there's a uh, will to find a way, you know? Uh, so, you know, when I'm 12 years old, uh, I'm figuring out a way to get a job, like washing dishes under the table, you know what I mean? Yeah. And so, I mean, what I what I learned, what I, I, I take from him, what I, I think were the real strengths that I developed as a result uh, were, were number one, just tremendous work ethic, you know, I mean, as I've gotten older, I've, I've really learned to put that into context, though. I, I'm always super hesitant about this um, like lionization of work ethic, especially today, especially in the entrepreneur community. Mm-hmm. It's just like hustle and work ethic and you got to work hard and everyone's talking about that. But my experience suggests that that's not nearly enough. Right. Everyone I grew up around worked way harder than anyone I've ever met in my life then or now. (laughs) Um, Yet they didn't get the rewards that the entrepreneurs and and the work ethic hustlers um, are talking about so often nowadays. So what what you know, this work ethic became instilled in me. And then really I got to this point as I got a little bit older thinking like, wow, okay, work ethic alone isn't sufficient you know, maybe necessary, but it's insufficient for the kind of success people are talking about. These people I I know are working super hard and they're getting no material rewards, you know? So there must be something else to this equation, but you know, um, that ethic, that was just a huge part of my upbringing. So there wasn't uh, dreaming big. There wasn't like, Oh, I'm going to achieve success. Um, it was, uh, well, I'm just going to have to work hard my whole life. You know, Mm -hmm. that's what I see around me. That's what this is about. Um, and it really came much later, the idea of dreaming, uh, even building up confidence. I didn't have a lot of confidence growing up. I was born, uh, pretty premature. So Mm -hmm. I had to live the first little while in the hospital. And, um, so as a consequence of that, I was always kind of small Mm -hmm. and, often associated with uh, being born premature is introversion as well you know uh, for anyone who's read susan kane's like marvelous book on this subject um, the idea around introversion and extroversion is is, like people don't understand those those concepts very well they're like oh social or not social but that's not Mm -hmm. really it you know the hallmark of sort of introversion is um i guess uh being overstimulated by stimuli you know Mm -hmm. so Lights, bright lights are brighter. Loud noises are louder. Public spaces are more overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not that you can't do well in them. It's just that they are fatiguing. Your nervous system gets more taxed. So, uh, and, and as a kid, that was super characteristic. My mom was like a shopaholic. And so she would dragged us to the mall or whatever. And I remember like coming home and not knowing what was wrong with me. But after a trip to the mall, I would need to draw the blinds, curl up in my bed for an hour just to recover, you know? So, you know, this whole sort of um, experience of, you know, uh, having a little less money and a little less things, you know, uh, being really shy and introverted, um, it didn't, it, it let, uh, being small, uh, it, it led to not a lot of confidence and not a lot of big dreams. And, and fortunately, I, I, I discovered those later and and the vehicle was the thing, you know, one of the things we share in common, a passion for uh, performance and and, uh, physical development. Uh, I discovered that when I was a teenager, I I really sort of started nerding out on it, reading books on, you know, muscle building and nutrient biochemistry as a high school student. And I wasn't a good student. Like this wasn't like an academic drive. Uh, And I was like, Oh, wow, my, I, I could improve my asthma and my allergies and my scrawniness and all this stuff with physical culture, you know? And, uh, and that's really when uh, self-efficacy came in my life. It was through this, this vehicle of uh, physical efficacy. And then it started to slowly trickle into a sort of mental efficacy.
0: Mm. Before we segue into where you went with that, I'm curious with your parents being immigrants, you know, y- That that whole Maslow's uh, theory of higher needs. And when you look, have you ever had the opportunity to sit down with your parents at some point and talk about how they viewed life in a sense or what they were what, what it meant to them? Um, versus what it now means to us, and also if you 'd never had that conversation i 'm curious what you maybe thought their perspective was and the other yeah. spin off i 'm interested in is your is your was your mom and a typical Italian mom where food was love in some sense and how <sighs> yeah. did, how did yeah. that relate to where you've you 've gone in your life as well yeah it 's interesting i mean uh,
1: well, the, the the latter one is it was more of a grandparents' thing you know okay. what i mean my my grandparents were kind of that way uh, in our house uh, my dad was the the one who prepped the meals. Oh, and, okay. uh, and so, and that's again, like very formative for me. That's exactly how our household works now. I'm the one who sort of loves food, loves food preparation. Um, and obviously I went into nutrition. There was actually a point where I thought I'd, I'd become a chef. That was one of my original sort of aspirations. When I was a teenager, I started really getting into food and was like, oh, maybe I'll go to culinary school. Um, and, uh, and I applied to culinary schools. I, I, I wasn't like when I started to really believe in myself, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. So I was like, I'm going to apply to culinary schools and maybe I'll apply to med schools and (laughs) (laughs) do a sampling of everything out there see what I can get into. And, um, so yeah, I mean, food, food really, for me, it became the the patriarchal thing in our, in our family. Hmm. Um, it was really my grandmoms who had the, the food is love kind of come eat and manja <laughs> manja, you know? Um, so yeah, so that's, that's that one. Um, what was the first question again? Well,
0: your parents, you know, like typical oh, yeah, of that generation, they're, they're, they're there's the that sort of Maslow's uh, yes you know, process of higher needs, so to speak, and where yeah. we are today. I mean, we were always, always whining about our circumstances. And a lot of times the Im- immigrants who came over or our grandparents suffered, you know, without really ever having the contemplative moment of what (laughs) what what is what what the self-reflection piece. uh, Yeah, Uh,
1: we've talked about this. My favorite example is uh, is honestly uh, the phrase that a lot of immigrants will use, like um, when they talk about education, for example, you know, like go get your education because no one can ever take that away from you. And growing up that never like resonated with me because of what you said, we're in a totally different environment and culture, but I'm like, Oh, these, these are people who grew up during world war II in Italy, where people came and took shit away from them. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like if no one's ever come and taken things from you, then that is meaningless, you know, but um, you know, and also the idea of come right off the boat, they rode on a shitty boat. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like, they were on this boat for weeks. And this wasn't a luxury cruise liner. You know what I mean? You're <laughs> sloshing around in the galleys, right? So, um, you're right. Like, the lack of complaining that's uh, attached to, I mean, this was the dream. You know what I mean? I'm like, we grew up poor. We grew up in a little garage, a, a apartment over a garage. Like, this was markedly better for yeah. them. You know what I mean? So, you know, it's, it's very illustrative of another, I think, important lesson in life is, is that um, sort of Eastern philosophy talks about these, these ideals quite a lot, but sort of to bring it into our way of speaking about it, you know, it's just this idea that, like, um, we often evaluate things relatively, Right. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's like I was poor relative to some of the other kids in my school, but they were doing awesome relative to where they were from. And, you know, are there ways in our lives where we can kind of squint our eyes and try and look at the absolute value of things versus the relative, you know? Um, and, And so that's why I think to your question, it's really interesting to explore that with folks who have totally different life experiences, in this case, only one generation removed where they were on a boat to get here. And, and when they got here, people were like, boo, go home. You know, and you're like, no, this is the dream. Mm. I, I'm actually living out the dream. And, you know, um, my wife is uh, a Canadian, many generations. And um, so there are little things that um, I'm always trying to sort of patiently convey to her around um, my parents, you know, who they are and, and what their experience of the world will have been. And, and also the pride that they would get from very, very simple things that we may take for granted, mm-hmm. you know, like we recently bought a cottage, right. And so I, I wanted them to come up and see it. And, um, you know, she was like, well, the t-, you know, she's trying to work out the timing and, and in all fairness to her, you know, we've got little kids and the timing does have to be right. Um, but I'm like, let's not delay too long because like this would be a tremendous source of pride for them that you would never understand. Hmm. You know, like, like me having a house and a cottage, you know, from where they came from, like a, a little place in the mountains with no running water. Like they, my dad didn't go to school growing up. What he did was he went with my grandma to the fields. And what she would do is she would tie a rope around his wrist and a rope around a chicken's foot, and that was his companion for the day. <laughs> so, you know, it's just a totally different life, and 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 so it's it's sometimes hard to connect because of all these differences in worldview. But in other ways, that it's I find it really important to appreciate. You
0: know, mm-hmm. so you you um, find bodybuilding or physical culture sort of uh, in your teens I guess and and tell me about what it's what it does for you from a positive standpoint and maybe even what it does from a negative standpoint as you look back on it or maybe you don't Mm -hmm. interested in what you take away from that experience in your life yeah totally I mean
1: uh, like the uh, the the list of positives far outweighs the negatives uh especially with the benefit of hindsight now because I think it turned out all right but um the uh you know, the positives were just this tremendous and and really uh, I learned it as a body improvement tool. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Uh, But now I realize like it really started sowing the seeds for this idea of uh, personal efficacy, you know, Mm -hmm. And, and I, and I totally get, especially in today's conversation, political conversation, and even philosophical conversation that that can, start to feel like me saying that self-reliance and you know uh your personal ethic is the only thing that determines your circumstances in life and i don't believe that by any means you know i think but i think it's like we talk about in in uh physiology right is it nature or nurture neither that's a dumb question it's both you know what i mean (laughs) no we nature is our genetics we all have those nurture is the environment we grew up in we all have one you know So it's the same for me, like, um, you know, your ability to dream or uh, think about the changes you want made in your life is important as is the set of circumstances that either allow or create huge barriers to that change. But for me, I was just like, well, this is, this is the first time in my life I've said, I'd like something to be different. And then I put in an honest effort and it became different Holy mm. shit! What else could I do this with? You know what I mean, right? And it, it it started as muscles. You know what I mean. It started as oh, now oh wait, I could actually play a sport if I wanted to, or I oh I can actually run outside without like having an uh, exercise-induced asthma attack. You know, um, and uh, I could be strong. And so all all of this, I mean it it. It then later translated into academics because I, I didn't pay much attention to school in high school, and I was doing a lot of drugs and, and a lot of alcohol. And um, the the idea that oh wait I um, I could actually start paying attention and put the same work ethic towards academics and maybe see the same kinds of changes and successes and outcome. Whoa, okay, let me try that. And then, you know, on down the line, then learning about business and then having a family and really wanting to do a good job at that. And then through each of the transitions of life, you know, it really was that first example. It it actually makes my heart feel sad a little bit when I meet people who haven't had that kind of experience in their lives. Mm -hmm. And there are at every age, people who don't actually realize that uh, a certain amount of smart and consistently applied force can change your circumstances or uh, at least increases the odds that your circumstances will be changed. It's not a hundred percent. And, uh, and, and I need some of them and it does, it's, it feels, you know, cause I was lucky enough to learn that at a fairly young age and then just be able to use that tool over and over again. You know, so I, I mean, there's a whole bunch of other what what I consider like secondary benefits,
0: you know. Um, I want to try to unpack that for a second, because yeah. maybe you can, maybe you can't. But you mentioned there's a lot of people who have not felt that before. And my question to you would be, was there a moment or can you reflect on a moment or a, a time? Um, because you grew up in circumstances where there is an excuse um a, a so-called excuse uh leverage point there where you know well i don't have much i'm like i don't come for much i'm never going to amount to much kind of viewpoint and then there's the view and, and so i think there's people who live in that mm-hmm. and then you you at some point made something clicked what what clicked that allowed you to go from okay i'm in this this difficult circumstance but i can i'm going to take charge of this element and then that transcends into you're taking charge of other elements in your life
1: yeah, I think, um, I think probably rock bottom is what, what, clicked, you know, <laughs> um, what, what happened for me was, you know, this, this will feel overly cinematic or whatever, but it, it's the, it's my exact experience of what happened. Hmm. Um, one night I was probably late, late teens. I was out with some friends and you know we were drinking getting high and we decided to go cosmic bowling right which teenagers do (laughs) and uh and so um i was in the back seat with my best friend chris at the time and uh two of my other friends were up in the front and on the way home uh the driver was doing the hey Uh, swerve the car idiocy. You know what I mean? Like, isn't this fun? Like late night country road swerving across the road. And, um, and so as we were approaching town, you know, curbs start to come up because you go from country to, you know, the burbs out of town. And, uh, and so he did the swerve and he actually hit a curb. And then what happened was, you know, the front tire hit and it sort of drew the back tire. And then we started doing three sixties across the road I knew this road really well. And off the left side, which is where we were heading, um, there were just, it was just a bunch of trees and, uh, I'm like, we're dead for sure. Like, you know, and it it really was a, a weird, like near death experience where the time just really slowed down. It was, it was so crazy. Um, you know, remembering it after the fact, but, um, time slow I, I feel like it's just we're just whoosh whoosh like 360s across the road and i grab my friend chris and i push him down and then i kind of jump on on top of him and i'm like we're going to hit one of these trees and dead we're all dead on impact and so the car lands and i'm like raising my head i'm like we're, we're not dead um and the what ended up happening was we perfectly positioned between two trees, knocking the side view mirrors off both, but without actually hitting either of the trees. Wow. And, um, while all this was happening, I remember, I mean, I wasn't getting along with my parents. Well, at the time I was in a pretty rebellious stage. And, and again, I was drunk and high most of the time. So that wasn't helping things. And, um, the, I had like the, I I don't know, again, the cliche, like I was seeing my life flash before my eyes. I had uh, visions of my childhood, like with my little brother, and we were very close growing up. And, you know, I I remember like little moments of joy, spending time with him. And then I remember like my grandparents, uh, some of whom had passed and, and I was just seeing my life. And then the last scene was uh, my parents standing over my open grave, and obviously like sadness and shame was on their face and I felt horrible. You know what I mean? I'm like, this is, uh, I'm the, I'm the result of all these choices that they've made
0: mm-hmm.
1: and I'm breaking their heart and causing them great shame. Like, fuck, <laughs> you know, <laughs> <laughs> and so when we landed, I was just like, I have to go, I have to go. Like I, I, not just have to leave this scene, but something has to be different in my life. And I did, I just, I was like, guys, uh, let me help you get this car back on the road. And then I, I'm going to walk. And so I walked away from the car, walked home that night. They got the car back on the road. They got pulled over by the police because the car was in shambles and all got arrested that night. Um, and for me, I, I never, I never saw those guys again. Like it it was literally the next day I woke up and was like, I don't know what is going to be different in my life, but something's got to be different, you know? And so it was, it was, it, that was the, the pivot moment and what was, um, What I always like to tell people about that is the cinematic moment goes, and then I woke up and I started working towards a new future. And you know what I mean? And and cue the inspirational music, (laughs) but it wasn't like, I didn't know anyone. Like I stopped hanging out with all the people I knew. Mm. I stopped self-medicating with alcohol and drugs. It was a lonely, terrible year, (laughs) you know? And the thing that actually, um, saved me, I think was the weight room. I started going to the gym just by myself, you know, when when I went and run into the old, you know, usual cast of of suspects. And, um, and one day I was just, you know, leg pressing or something. And the gym owner came over and he gave me some tips. And now this guy was like, all the young guys hero in our town. He was a competitive bodybuilder. He was probably two forty and lean. And, uh, he was a very good looking guy. He drove a cool car. He owned a host of gyms. So everyone looked up to him. And so he came over, he's giving me advice. And then at the end of it, he's like, Hey, how would you like to come work out with me tomorrow morning? Uh, I'm doing legs be here at 6am before the gym opens, right? Little did I know this was his test. Right? I, was, I was leg pressing and that's what he So I did legs that day. He invited me to come for legs the next day, <laughs> super early in the morning and, uh, and I showed up. And then he became my training partner for the next two years. He taught me all about food, all about fitness. He gave me a job at the gym. Um, he's the one, I'm, I'm in this field because of him for sure. 100%, you know, um, it's, it's actually why I have this inexplainable draw toward back towards this field. You know, I mean, um, as, as I mentioned to you and you probably knew, you know, uh, Phil and I had sold the majority stake in precision nutrition about two years ago, but it's why I keep finding myself continuing to come back and work in the space because, um, of this uh, emotional attachment to, uh, wanting to see the kind of professionals like this guy and like myself as a young person, Uh, find a home in this field, find a career. So Mm -hmm. anyway, I mean, that's, that's kind of the story, you know, it was, it was sort of hitting rock bottom. And then when I was really, really in this wasteland between my old life and the new life, having a mentor come along and and literally pick me up, like I'm laying, like I envision it, I'm laying back on the leg press and this guy comes over and he's standing over me and he's the figure who's going to lift me up out of this thing and does, you know, so it's again, it sounds overly cinematic, but it's, this is the true experience that sort of led me to that next chapter, I guess.
0: Hmm. So you, you, do you find nutrition or uh, as a, as a profession or does it find you or how does that whole sort of trans transformation into this being what you want to do versus, as you had mentioned earlier, you're kind of hunting and packing? Yeah. So this guy, his name's
1: Craig. I mean, you know, the next two years of my life is, uh, him giving me books to read, you know, him, he gave me a job, you know, him going here, I'm going to pay for you to go get certified. Um, so you can train clients. And, um, and so during the course of that exploration, I'm just sort of falling in love with health and fitness and physical change and, and helping others change. And, um, and at the time he's like, I, I I, he's like, you're a smart guy, you, you need to go get education, right? So, um, I didn't have good enough grades to get into u- university. So I was just going to a community college at the time and, um, and I'm doing the basics of anatomy and physiology and physics and chemistry. And I'm, I'm like crushing it. I'm doing really, really well. Cause I'm like motivated now. And so as I'm learning about these things, uh, every class uh, is really just me looking for, uh, ways to pervert this new knowledge into how I can make myself bigger and leaner <laughs> and stronger. You know what I mean? I remember I have this, I had this, I have this still to this day, although it's improved. I had this terrible gap in understanding female physiology, because whenever that section would come up, I'm like, who gives a shit I'm here <laughs> to learn about how to improve male physiology? Of my own. And so, you know, then, then eventually my grades were good enough to get into university. And then as I sort of went through university, I was like the strength training aspect is really interesting to me, but really it's this nutrition stuff and nutritional biochemistry. And, um, uh, how powerful the uh, manipulation of hormones and metabolism, and so I mean, I I was I did a pre med undergrad, and then and then when I went, uh, th- that's when I was like, oh, maybe I'll go to med school, but I just realized like I don't like I don't like that though. Uh, the the reason I was thinking that was a because it's going to be hard, and I and I like challenges now all of a sudden, you know, and and b there's probably still immigrant stuff. You know what I mean? Like uh, every immigrant child knows, like if you want to make your parents happy, you go be a doctor or a lawyer. <laughs> you know what I mean? It doesn't matter what country your fa- your family immigrated from. Uh, it could be Europe or Asia or anywhere. Like these are these are the respected professional careers. Uh, so there's probably a little bit of that. And then the third part was just like, oh yeah, I'm going to learn deeply about how the body works. Again, as a way to... Uh, it, at least try and make that, uh, the Venn diagram overlap with my own interests. Hmm. Uh, And then on the eve of of actually going to med school, I was like, what, what if I set down this idea that, um, I need everything to be hard. You know what I mean? Like, what if I just set that down? What would I do? I'm like, oh, I just go study exercise and nutrition. So then that's what I decided to do. I went and did a master's um, in, in exercise phys. So, uh, you know, all the little electives were all around nutrition. I was choosing nutrition. I was choosing biochemistry and I was choosing pharmacology. I was really interested in other substances outside of food that can manipulate physiology. And so that's really, it just, uh, and, and what I would do is I meet with my guidance counselors and my department heads all through school and be like, Hey, listen, I know you've outlined a curriculum for this, but I, I'm weird. so i want to take all (laughs) these other things is there a way to do that you know and i was with my graduate mentor um recently peter lemon uh at, at western uh here in canada and um you know pete is a legend in the nutrition research field and um so uh since i graduated he's put on this annual symposium at the university and so i've been back at every year since um and spoke at everyone except for one year when my grandma passed and uh, um um he, he recently this was just like last month he's like you remember that time when you were a student and you went to go just audit um their the phd level pharmacology class and the prof was like no 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 you're gonna get you're gonna get crushed <laughs> you know <laughs> and you're like no, no it, it'll be okay um and, uh, and that nice. was, that's, that was kind of an example of my experience in university. I was like, I figured out, and I think this is a result of my environment growing up that if you want some of the good stuff to happen, you have to play by some of the rules. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and my parents are very big rule followers. Right. I mean, how could you not be, you come to this country, you're like, we could get kicked out of the, you know what I mean? Like, let's follow all the rules and let's make sure everyone recognizes that we're following all the rules. Like if I got in trouble at school, whether it's my fault or not, I got in trouble at home. You know what I mean? Because that was the public perception of us being troublemakers. So I, I learned that, Hey, you got to follow some of the rules, but I also had this other streak in me that was like, but I want to create a path. Right. And this is like the perfect one plus one, like synergy. You know what I mean? It's like, man, I got some of that from my parents, but now we're in this free environment, you know, and now, now I'm an American, you know, where I I can um, find a, a way to make that coexist with striving and, and to coexist with this new pursuit, right? Which I, I, I've thought for a long time is really interesting because it's an accident of environment, but beautiful too. You know, it's like that. I took
0: that thing and I shaped it a little bit just to my new circle. Sur- circumstances okay quick break here to tell you about reconditioning reconditioning is for treatment skills and protocols and training methods and exercises like an operating system on a smartphone is for applications fundamentally reconditioning brings the worlds of therapy and performance preparation together in one systematic process that makes treatments and training systems more efficient and effective Level 1 takes you through the fundamental assessment process and gives you a tactical approach to eliminating issues that stand in the way of your client's progress towards quality movement and a healthy and high-performing state. Level two goes deep on context, analyzing and understanding variable movement patterns, gaining clarity on key movement attributes, and being exceptionally precise about your interventions and strategies. It then links the overall preparation program. It becomes deeply considerate of the context of that program and the environments of the preparation. Finally, our Reconditioning Mastery Mentorship is a completely virtual experience you can engage in from the comfort of your home. It allows you to benefit from our 50 years of professional practice in a high-quality community of practitioners. This eight-week program walks you through how to apply this powerful operating system in your environment and your circumstances, irons out all the question marks, and ensures you are ready to deliver the most effective reconditioning practice to your clients. Head over to reconditioninghq.com to see when our next courses are being held and when our next mastery mentorship is starting. Become a reconditioning specialist and join the reconditioning revolution. Okay, we're back. I
1: talked to a lot of young young people, young friends, young students, young entrepreneurs today. And, and I feel that there's this interesting thing happening where um, it, they just don't have the same sort of um, respect for education, mm. which is, which is cool. I mean, I, I think maybe uh, my parents' generation had too much respect for what education could do. Um, uh, and, and now this one's like, oh, but you don't need it. It's a waste of time, you know? Or that when you're in the midst of it, that somehow if you're playing the game, uh, you're not being true to yourself. So in other words, if you're just learning the material uh, that the professors want you to learn and writing the answers that you're supposed to write on the tests, that you're somehow not being a critical thinker. And I think that's a mistake. You know, I think that that's just that game, right? It's not the whole of your life, right? Right. Um, it reminds me of when uh, Eastern uh, philosophy talks about this idea of um, the observing self, right? Mm-hmm. So, there's if you're angry or feeling a strong emotion in the moment, um, the first thing, part of you wants to do is really identify with that I. All of me is angry or jealous or whatever the case may be. But the observing self, you can tune into that for a moment and go, "Hey, oh, well, well, wait a second. There's part of me." that's noticing that I'm angry. And that part isn't angry at all, right? And, or that part isn't jealous at all. Like that's the real self, you know, the observing self. And so, you know, it just kind of reminds me of the same thing, which is, um, you know, you can have this, the academic self winning the academic game. And so, I mean, I just draw that back to what my experience was. I wanted to win the academic game and I also wanted to squeeze the academy for all the things that I wanted to, you know, and that was how I got through school. And I did very, very well in school. And I also left having learned a ton of things that I wouldn't have had with the traditional academic experience.
0: Mm. It's an interesting segue actually into, you know, having listened to the small piece that you did for Altus Um you tell a story in it, which you can elaborate on about being, you know, speaking to a bunch of bobsledders and sort of giving the the classic sort of nutritional spiel and them sort of, you know, not necessarily truly listening to it at the end of the day. And you sort of having this resonant connection with the why part of why, why, why is nutrition the The fact of the matter: nutrition not being necessarily absorbed. And what you just talked about is really this concept of individual differences. For some, the, the the concept of constructed education is going to be really empowering. For some, it's going to be a distraction. For some, entrepreneurialism is going to be something that really in, empowers them. For some, it's not. And in, in nutrition, there's really different ways to skin a cat. When did you when did you have this kind of discovery? and we'll take it, unpack it from the nutritional perspective and then shift it into business where you recognized that you really had to understand the the person's why and, and Mm -hmm. find ways of connecting with that, that allowed you to be maybe as successful as you've been in nutrition and and in business.
1: Yeah. And I think the first lesson comes from just a a real, uh, mismatch between the problem we think we want to go out and solve and the one that needs to be solved, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, you know this. We talked about Stu, and and th- this is full circle because you know uh, this was Stu calling me and saying, "Hey, JB, come down. I want you to work with the U.S. bobsled team at the time, which he was coaching." and uh, And I remember just preparing this slide deck, which had all the cutting edge stuff and the latest research, and you know, uh, ever like up to the date uh, journal references. You know, <laughs> and I had like six hours of it prepared. And I, I walk into this little lecture hall at the University of Calgary, which uh, is, you know, the Olympic Oval where they trained at the time. Um, and um, like half the team walks in late, holding bags at McDonald's. And, you know, and I was like, Oh man, <laughs> I, I need to give a new talk. <laughs> you know? It was this sort of dawning uh, realization. And I, sort of encapsulated in this particular moment, but it really took the next year or two of, of my career to really think about what this meant. But um this idea that the problem we're trying to solve is, is uh, knowledge, you know, what should I eat to improve my performance? And uh, I was on Mike Gervais podcast recently. um And, you know, he, he put it this way, like, you know, most people know the difference between apples and apple pie, but they just eat too much apple pie, right? So this isn't the knowledge issue that we thought it was. This is an application issue. And even more specifically, um, a psychological issue. Um, You know, when we say it's an application issue, that becomes too much personal responsibility stuff again. Like if you really wanted it bad enough, if you weren't lazy and ambivalent, you know, but, but really what we're talking about is, is creating an environment that's conducive to change, uh, creating a place where the likelihood, the probability of change goes up. You know, if we expect as coaches, our clients to just do a massive personal heroic effort to achieve success, some will do that and we'll have an effective screening tool for the people who are willing to do massive heroic effort, you know what I mean? And then, if we're talking about elite sport, now we're finding only the athletes who are willing to do massive heroic effort and have the perfect genetic makeup. So the population to draw from for athletic success, high performance, is too small. <laughs> you know what I mean? You need to be both genetically gifted, athletically, and have this other gift of. Fortitude or stick to itness or whatever. Uh, as a coach, we shouldn't be screening for the smallest possible population. We should be looking for factors that increase the probability of success in the broadest possible population that could have success. you know and I, and I think about that with nutrition coaching, I think about that with athletics coaching, I think about that with uh, life coaching. you know what are the things we can put in play? to increase the probability of success. So Mm -hmm. for every hundred people that I could expose to my coaching, how can I make sure that 40 have a chance of succeeding rather than 10, Mm. you know, and that's where it goes beyond nutritional biochemistry or beyond, you know, high performance physiology. Uh, This goes to what we refer to as coaching, you know, which is a psychological endeavor. It's philosophy. It's, psychology, it's behavior modification, and it's the idea of individualization that you talk about. You know, I think of it in terms of limiting factor, like a simple idea of identification of limiting factors is that young female athlete doesn't eat animal protein presents with, you know, fatigue and diminishing performance. I mean, one of the first things you look at as a nutrition coach would be iron, right? Mm -hmm. Do we have someone who's facing like an iron deficiency, anemia type of situation? So imagine if we started coaching that athlete, not in this way, if we didn't look for limiting factors and let's say we're like, Oh, it's probably your diet. So let's put you on a paleo diet, right? (laughs) So you basically take an athlete and you give them a hundred new behaviors and a very difficult thing to do that basically represents a complete lifestyle overhaul. And all they really needed to do was get some iron you know? <laughs> and yeah. this, this is what's happening all over performance, yeah, all over nutrition, all over coaching in general. Mm-hmm. We're like, you need a lifestyle change. I mean, that's the nice way we say it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think really coaching is about finding the log that's creating the log jam. Right? What's the thing that's limiting your performance and causing a symptom or preventing uh an and increment? Um okay, then let's work on that. You know, and that's that's what I've really become fascinated with. And that that's really what the mission was early on at, at PN, at Precision Nutrition. You know, can, can we unpack nutrition coaching uh into a process that's much like, I don't know, a, an exercise or performance progression. Hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So rather than let's just start doing everything different with your diet, uh, let's figure out what skills you need to build. And, you know, I mean, an example that I commonly give is, you know, let's say someone comes into the, the gym and decides they'd like to start doing effective and, and high quality snatches, right? Well, you don't just give, you know, show them one of yours and then give them the bar and say, well, give it, give it a try, give it a go, <laughs> you know, <laughs> probably do some kind of movement assessment to look for, um, you know, deficits in movement or in range of motion. Uh, then what you'd probably do is chunk out the movement into uh, more simple skills that can actually be stacked until eventually they're doing it with a broomstick and then eventually you load the bar. Um, well asking someone to follow a diet is, is actually just giving them the bar and asking them to snatch away. Mm-hmm. You know, so so it, it really was sort of you know, that moment with the bobsledders going, okay, wait, we're not solving a knowledge problem, we're solving a behavior problem. Okay, and then how do you actually nudge people towards better behaviors? Well, you do it in a systematic progressive way in which basic fundamental skills are built and then you stack the more complicated skills on top And now you almost get like a curriculum model for learning a new skill, which the skill may be eating better or it may be learning to do an exercise or whatever the case may be.
0: Mm -hmm. How, um, sort of to play off of that and to understand how you turned this deep interest in nutrition and, and, and the science and all the other things that you brought to the table into a business life. But how did you go from being uh, a solopreneur kind of doing your, your own thing and, and investigating that world. What, what converted you into entrepreneurialism and seeing this be something much bigger than just taking care of one cl- the client in front of you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, um, I love to talk about my master
1: plan and all my, my early, uh, precocious business acumen. or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but none of that was true I mean you know my, my philosophy on, on everything uh, had had probably by my late 20s had become um, analogous to how I would view dating right so um, do you start dating someone uh, with the initial meeting being a screening tool for marriage and life <laughs> forever after there's some people who do i think (laughs) but i get where you're going with that (laughs) Or do you just go hey i met a cool person today would i like to talk to them again you know what i mean if yes see if they want to talk to you again (laughs) if they do find uh the next level of talking that's not too far from the last one you know what i mean Mm -hmm. Uh, but maybe builds more rapport and then Oh, okay. Hey, we liked our second conversation. Hey, maybe the, maybe the third one's a date. Uh, maybe the one after that is a uh, weekend. You know what I mean? Like, so there's a progression um, that's based on what happened at the last stage. Uh, and, and that's really what happened with, with business if you want to call it that. I mean, um, what happened was I was speaking at a conference with uh, which uh, Ken Kinnack and put on in the, early 2000s and then has sort of breathed life back into again the last couple of years. Mm. Um, uh, Society for Weight Training Injury Specialists was the acronym. and re- But really what it was at the time was Ken just brought all the big name people and bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength and conditioning and fitness uh, to this event. And the reason it stopped after a few years is because he was bringing such high profile, such big name people, he couldn't possibly make money on it. You know what I mean? <laughs> it was a money losing endeavor, which was okay for him to a certain point because he was just so pleased to be putting on one of the best events in the world uh, that, that had this kind of purpose. And uh, so I was speaking at it in maybe 2002 and uh, a young um, systems design engineering student, Phil Caravaggio, came up after the talk and, uh, we had a great conversation and he was like, Hey, I, I, I lived in London at the time. And he's like, I come to London every so often. Do you mind if I come say hi check out your lab, take you to lunch? So I said, yes. And, And basically what Phil was doing at the time was Waterloo for those who don't know in Canada is kind of like the MIT, uh, of Canada. It's, you know, super, super smart engineering students go there and, you know, they're solving the futures problems you know (laughs) Um, and uh so he was in system design engineering and and at the time he was building web interfaces for ibm and other companies and uh, he was like i i I love your work i love the field we should build a website for you and and start sharing this knowledge that you have like in a broader way and uh the visionary that i was i was like that'll never work Because again, context is so important at the time, I had a a little like IBM laptop mm. connected to dialogue. You know <laughs> what I mean like it mm. didn't have much storage capacity, and when you wanted to get online, you had to I, I would read my te- I'd do my textbook readings while waiting for a web page to load. You know mm. what I mean <laughs> um, so'm like who, who wants this? you know no experts had their own websites and stuff like that so um But nevertheless, he was persuasive and convinced me. So we built a website. And and what we did was we just started sharing the things we were learning. You know, I I would spend uh, one full day a week in the stacks at the library just reading journals. And you remember when you didn't get them online, if you want to read the latest study from the Journal of Applied Physiology, you had to go in the basement of the library where these were bound right? Every three or six months of journals were bound together and you just had to pull it off the shelf and read it. And um, so I spent a whole day doing that each week. And then I was doing some coaching on the side and I was just sharing what I learned on the website and um, it started to get popular. And we put a little thing like subscribe to newsletter on the side, you know, uh, if you want more great updates from us and people signed up for those things back in the day, there wasn't spam Concerns and all the things we have nowadays. And so in a pretty short period of time, we had, you know, 30,000 people on our mailing list. And we wanted to figure out what we we're going to do with our lives because school is coming to an end, uh, grad school. And um, I actually got a job um, offer from a big sports supplement company and, and Phil got a big offer from IBM. And we looked at each other and we're like, you know, these are pretty enticing offers. They were six-figure salaries for both of us right out of school. Um, but, hey, should we see if there's something we can do with this science link thing, which was the early name of precision nutrition? And we're like, yeah, okay, we can go get, we can go get big shitty jobs later. <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's, let's at least try this for now. And so we just started uh, – we were making no money at the time, and we just started, like, doing some, some one-on-one online coaching, and then doing information products, and so you know that went on for about a year or so, and we we're probably making like eight thousand dollars a month total. Um, and then what ended up happening was, you know, we had this big list, and uh, we also wanted to put together like a really comprehensive knowledge pro- product. So we we put together what we called the Precision Nutrition System, and it was really a series of guidebooks, nutritional guidebooks. We also filmed. A uh, bunch of video uh, at the university. So, part of the video was a seminar that I gave, part was a bunch of cool things we were doing in the lab, part was like we went to a, a cooking a teaching kitchen and we did some like practical nutrition stuff there. So, we threw that in, and then there was a bunch of audio. We just made this really comprehensive, uh, sort of do it yourself, self guided nutrition program. And, uh, we launched that and that exploded. I mean, it, I think we sold a thousand units, uh, during our launch, hmm. uh, which, you know, we went, so we went from $8,000 a month in, in coaching revenue or whatever to, and, and, um, some like an early cookbook that we did to 140,000 sold in the first month. And sales were really progressing from there. I think, you know, after the launch, we're averaging about 60,000 a month in sales on this thing. But what we started to really feel was that um, information products alone don't change people's lives. Hmm. You know what I mean? Like a book doesn't actually change anyone's life. What a book can probably do is introduce a new idea, which I think if you connect with other people about, helps the idea take root. And then if you get some kind of support through the implementation of that idea, there's a high probability that that idea could make a difference in your life. But there's a lot of ifs there, you know? Mm-hmm. So we were like, hey, what, what if we could reach some of these people who are like buying our self-guided system, <clears throat> but coach them? You know, And that was the original sort of thinking. And then I actually got invited to speak at this company. <clears throat> I don't think they're around anymore. Um, But what they did is they provided executive coaching for, for big companies. Hmm. And um, I remember spending the day with them and I saw they had this like great online platform where you could go in and each day you'd have some assignments or practices to do, and then you'd submit them. And again, this, you know, is so common now, but this didn't exist. I never, you you didn't ever see this kind of thing. So I came back and I was like, Phil, it's all coming together, man. Like we really want to offer something that where we can actually provide, if you want to call it scaled coaching. And I was just at this place this weekend where they're doing that for executive coaching, not for fitness, but just for skill development as an executive. We should try that. And that's really where our first big success came from. You know, it was, it was actually, um, being able to connect with people all over the world, to provide a type of group coaching in health and fitness um, that was really scalable and really effective, you know, mm-hmm. completely online. And as far as I know, we're the first uh, people who ever really did that, created an online group coaching program mm. in sort of nutrition and, and lifestyle change.
0: Mm. Wow. I'm going to use that moment to segue to a piece I do in every podcast from a book I found a while back called the day you were born and you are born on July 18th. You are a cancer nine. So it says your purpose is to use your power and ego to break through the resistance and fears of others so that you can intimately share your world with them, always respecting their space and never forgetting your own goals and path egoist a person more interested in himself than me ambrose beast in cancer nine ego is all pervasive especially if the moon succeeds and nurtures mars's sense of entitlement if mars dominates then the individual will be strong enough to stand up against the needs of others and do his own thing the cancer nine challenge here is to keep their sensitivity and concerns for others without losing Letting it overwhelm their sense of self. They must not try to control someone else's direction or lose themselves in theirs. They have the healer energy if they can keep their sensitivity. Gifted with great magnetism, power, and sexual energy, opposition attracts them. Early in life, they need to learn to protect themselves and then not become bullies in return. Access is all too possible with the Mars 9, but the only way they'll learn is by hitting a few walls. You're, you are powerful, and sometimes you may forget just how forceful your energy can be. Hmm. Nice. That's interesting. I mean, yeah. I, probably if you read you know,
1: Sagittarius, there'd probably be things that, <laughs> that, uh, that resonated as well, but that's an interesting one because, um, because it was actually uh, it actually relates directly to uh, a couple things that I think about a lot. Um, and one that I was even going to mention uh, earlier from, from sort of uh, my, my upbringing and, and, and some of the, we never got to the cons of, of, my experience with strength training and physical mm-hmm. transformation, mm-hmm. But, but that would have been one of them if we would have got to it, you know, the idea that um, that level of confidence um, that really becomes like a personal empowerment um, did, did, it does have some consequences, you know, mm-hmm. one is a rapidly growing ego, you know, <laughs> uh, which, which it did, you know, and, and, um, and I used that as fuel for a long time, which is also what this passage is, is talking about. Mm-hmm. I think one of the biggest transitions of my adult life as I, as I, um, you know, fell in love with my partner, tried to form a life with her. And then, and then we had children was this idea of putting what, what I sometimes call the chip on my shoulder down. Mm-hmm. You know, I derived a lot of energy <clears throat> in my early career from, uh, carrying a chip on my shoulder, you know, uh, all the kids who made fun of me when I was small, a little preemie, you know, all the teachers who told me I never amount to anything. I remember, um, my first day of university, right. So when I went from community college up to university and I met with a guidance counselor, I, I still remember the guy, I still remember the shirt he was wearing this was a long time ago. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and I told him what I wanted to do for a living. I was like, I'm really passionate about exercise and fitness and nutrition. And I, would love to work with professional athletes and teams. And he's like, Oh, I'm just going to stop you right there. Like the chance of that <laughs> happening is so small. Why don't you you seem like a smart guy? you got good grades. Why don't you get, go into medicine or something like that? You know, and I remember leaving his office and just being like, like just putting that in this little bucket of grievances that I carry around with me as fuel for success. And then to stack on top of that, I remember when I graduated undergrad, I applied for an internship at the USOC and uh, a guy from my university got a really strong letter of recommendation like five years prior and got the internship. Right. And, uh, and so the same professor was there and he's like, Oh, you're like one of my guys One of my students got this a few years ago. You're a way stronger student. I'm going to write a way better letter of recommendation. going to get it for sure. And I remember getting the rejection letter. And so i never got that internship at the USOC. And again, I'm just like dumping this fuel into my bucket of grievances. (laughs) And that was just like from my early life. And, and, you know, and it's not a binary thing. It just doesn't stop one day. Uh, I think what the, what is really bad about it is that in in my early life, I intentionally used all those grievances mm. as fuel, but then like in the in-between stage where you start to get older and more mature, you don't even know you're doing it anymore. Mm. You're just, you're carrying around this suffering. You don't even know why it's there mm. and it is fueling your performance. Mm. Um, but it's also corroding part of your soul. Mm. And so, um, you know, for me, that's one of the greatest things of, of, uh, this other phase of my life that I'm in now where I'm like, I can legitimately say that I'm no longer excited by driven by or, um, compelled to perform based on people telling me not to based mm-hmm. on a chip on my shoulder, based on trying to prove other people wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a really, really good feeling, and that's what this kind of reminds me of because it does the the walls in the passage, you know, uh, mm-hmm. bumping into walls. Uh, that was that was so critical for me early on, and, and this isn't me saying young people shouldn't use that as fuel. I'm like, I got to where I am doing this, you know. Mm-hmm. But there comes maybe another act of life where, man, you got to put this down, and you have to actually lean toward the things that are joyful and the things that you are really excited about doing and that meet your purpose. So, um, that was, that was a cool, that was a cool passage to read and reflect on while you're reading it. Because the second thing in my life has been that sort of tempering of uh, what might be measured as empathy Hmm. and ego Mm -hmm. you know, I I think you see a lot in the health and fitness and performance space also. So I I don't think we're going out on a limb here by saying that it might be useful uh, to talk (laughs) about in this context for the (laughs) listeners. Um, But, uh, but the, um, you know, I've been really fortunate in my career because uh, I've been put on big stages and had large platforms and things like that. So I have like, I don't know. My ego needs have been met a really long time ago,
0: mm.
1: you know. So uh, it, but th- but then the problem with that is I have ego privilege, right? <laughs> like, ah, oh, people out there stomping around trying to get people to look at them. What's wrong with them? <laughs> well, wait a sec, JB. You've had that for like twenty years. <laughs> <So> <laughs> it's easy for you to say it's not that important when you've benefited from it, you know. Right. So it, it really is this this dance, I think as the passage talked about between what is essentially empathy and ego, you know, how, how can both coexist because they can and they should Hmm. um, uh, in a way that, you know, I guess makes you not an asshole (laughs) and, and uh, makes you someone who's useful.
0: Yeah. Talk about that for a second. Actually, we're, I had a good conversation with a colleague of mine, Ben Sporer, who's a really talented physiologist in Canada, about this sort of same same conversation where, you know, when when we were younger, this area of expertise called human performance was was really just kind of, I guess, call, call it starting in some ways. I mean, mm-hmm. there's obviously some science behind it, but I think the investigative nature of it, and you mentioned the internet and the sort of the, permutations and directions of that. And now it seems like there is so much information and younger people are so immersed in all this information. And there are so many people doing, um, what we did, um, early in our careers, but now are sort of up against this wall of, of trying to create some level of significance and sort of shouting at the top of their lungs with their social Mm -hmm. media platforms. Um, without being preachy on the top of your pulpit at this point but how do you know how do you advise younger practitioners today in whatever side of that coin they're in on on staying the course of of building themselves and their experience whilst at the same time trying to find significance so that they can actually earn a living and, and you know be, be capable of 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 taking care of their families or themselves yeah
1: that's a great question and it's it's one that i have a framework for actually it's but it's it's funny it's going to seem like not connected when i first say it but but basically it's a marketing framework you know the because marketing like we can fetishize that word as whatever facebook paid post or whatever you know Mm -hmm. but really um marketing is just um Uh, do I like you trust you and and want to buy from you or hire you, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's no like, and trust. And um, the, the framework is essentially, if you want to know what marketing is in three easy steps, which also answers your question, it's know deeply what people want. That's the first one. You know, number two is, do, to so build, offer something awesome to deliver that thing that people want. And then three is tell everyone about it. Hmm. And that's how to build a career also. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? If, you, if we're talking about like you want to have some level of financial success and be of service and do something you're passionate about, you have to start with know what people want. And we don't know what people want. You know what I mean? That's a huge gap in sport performance and nutrition and health and fitness. We think we know what people want, but we sometimes don't even bother to ask. Mm -hmm. You know, and one of the classic examples I like to give is, I remember reading on a social forum, I think, um, someone, a client, a former client, this was a long time ago, uh, someone asked them uh, if she would recommend precision nutrition coaching. And her comment was basically like, no, I I wouldn't actually like, I mean, I I lost some weight. I got some results, but I just didn't really feel connected to my coach. And I felt like if I had questions, my coach wouldn't have answered it. So no, I'd steer clear of it. So I was like, Oh, that's really interesting. You know, who is this person and what, what happened, you know? And so I, I looked up her data. It turns out she lost like 50 pounds in our coaching program and improved every measure that we collect Uh, and we collect things like self-efficacy and we collect, you know, all kinds of like uh, knowledge acquisition markers. And, you know, we just want to see like, not only did they lose weight, but are they capable of keeping it off and have they built some uh, psychological skills and and some knowledge. And so everything improved for her yet still, she was, Evangelizing, not doing PN coaching. So I'm like, is this person crazy? <laughs> What's going on? What's going on? <laughs> so, right around that time, learning about a tech and it's sort of an interview technique to get deeply at, at why people are hiring, call it hiring a product or a service. And it might feel weird to say, like, someone might hire an iPhone or a drill. But the, they are, they, there's a job that they need done. And so they're hiring these tools to do it. And so it's, it's an interview technique that you use to get at the job that people are hiring you to do. So I interviewed this person and um, I realized, oh, wow, what she, You know, we, we assumed that our clients would, were wanting and would be happy if they got weight loss and the acquisition of knowledge and higher self-efficacy. But what this person also wanted was connection, uh, to to feel like they were connected to a person and a coach and a trusted advisor. And for whatever reason, didn't feel that. And it really sort of opened up this whole universe of possibilities for our understanding of what people really, really want. And so, I mean, we spent the next few years doing this jobs to be done process on all our products and all our services with people who didn't buy from us and did. people who quit and people who had, were successful. And what I learned was that most people don't know what people want. Mm-hmm. They just have no idea. Mm-hmm. You know, that guess, they think they do, they're wrong. And it, the way to know, if you know, is just a simple answer to this question. Have you interviewed a bunch of people? Really listen to their answers. Thought about what those answers would mean because sometimes people's answers don't really tell you what they want Mm. and then started to construct your offering. Let's call it that around that. If you haven't done that, then you don't know. I'm I'm confident of that. Mm. Um, So that's part one, you know, then the next thing is once you do know that and it takes a little while to figure that out, you have to do something awesome to deliver it because if you're offering the same old stuff as everyone else, now it doesn't have to be like, weirdly differentiated but let's be honest Scott you look around uh, a lot of coaches aren't doing something awesome Mm. they're doing something mediocre maybe kind of crappy you know Mm -hmm. so it's like how can you make yours awesome you know and whether that means the videos you make have a high production quality or the information you write actually has an editor look at it you know what I mean like Mm. something to make it high high quality And then once you have the two, like I'm really confident I know what people want. Now I'm going to, I've done the awesome thing to deliver it. Now I'm going to tell everyone about it, Hmm. you know, and, and, and that's the, that's what people think of as marketing, you know, the the standing up on the box and shouting with the megaphone, but marketing really happens way before that. Like if you don't have what people want and it's not awesome, please tell no one about it. (laughs) So, Keep a secret. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? You know, I'm an undiscovered genius. You're undiscovered, that's for sure. <laughs> you know, so, so that to me is how I, I encourage uh, people to think about their career because marketing is everything else. It, it's really what people's perception of you, it's what you're offering people to solve their problem and what their perception of that thing is and whether they've heard about it or not. Mm -hmm. Um, so again, fetishizing the word marketing or, or being like, Oh, I don't know how marketing advice could apply in my career would be a mistake because this is exactly what we're striving for. When you say I want a great career, it means I have, uh, I know what problem to solve. I have a good offering to solve it. And everyone out there knows that I have that. Hmm. So, you know, I I think it's a, it, it also is a career long
0: project. Mm-hmm. as you know. Patience. Yeah. Good, good advice. Um, I've kept you for a long time, but I, did, I didn't want to leave without just asking you about fatherhood. Um, you mentioned earlier, you know, the meeting of uh, t- meeting your partner and then, you know, this, this other phase of your life, having multiple children, you know, how has that contributed to your personal growth and tempered you or Strengthened you um, as a person.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. I mean, this would be a good
1: time to also say, or, or make you a worse person, <laughs> you know? Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, um, I think, I think um, the, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of answers I have. So I'm just trying to sort them out in my head, you know, mm-hmm. uh, one is like, how has it made me, um, more effective person. So we'll start there. Hmm. I want to get to better at the end because that'll be the feel good part. But you (laughs) know, the, the, uh, the effectiveness comes from just simply looking at all the accountabilities in your life and saying that I can't possibly meet them all Hmm. the way that I used to work when I was younger. You know what I mean? Like it's Mm -hmm. impossible. There's not enough hours. uh, when I was younger and we were growing our business and all that stuff, it was just like, Oh, something needed to be done. You just worked the whole weekend. Mm-hmm. You know, you just work till bedtime. Now, now tonight there's no bedtime. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Throw hours at it, you know? And, and as we led up to the idea of having children and then, and then had our first who's now nine, um, It was just like, I I can't do that anymore. I know that's coming and I can't do that any longer. How do I become a more effective person? And, and, you know, Peter Drucker has the book, The Effective Executive, which is essentially a book about knowing how to differentiate between efficiency and effectiveness. Efficiency is getting more done per unit time, effectiveness is don't do anything that's not worth doing. Spend all your time on the things that are actually worth doing that can move the needle. And you can know that intellectually, but until you have the constraints, in this case of family, you'll never do it. Mm -hmm. And that was the big thing that happened for me. You know, I was like, all right, um, can I actually get bigger, more important things done, even with the constraints of having, you know, family, Mm -hmm. Um, even with the desire to spend way more time with them than at work? You know, can we still accomplish I realized the answer was yes. So, and then that translated into my family life too. I started looking at the time spent with my family. You know, I I think sometimes we can take an overly simplistic view of what it means to be a participant in our family life, you know, as if somehow just the raw number of hours is going to lead to a, a good relationship. You know, and that's not true either. It's the same thing. What are you being effective is the time that I'm spending with each of my children one-on-one good time. You know, how do I engineer it so that it is so really you just see how family and work and then my my personal health and fitness stuff, same, right? Like I'm going to have to work out less hours. How do I make them more, effective and so it all starts playing together in this sort of ecosystem of life now where you have to choose which means spending more time thinking what the most important things are that will make a difference that will leverage the hours spent into the outcome you want right if it's an hour spent with a child or a couple children of mine I want the outcome of being closer to them of knowing them more of both of us feeling great about that time we spent not just Oh, yeah, I'm a good dad because I put in the hours. And then the same at work. You know, How do I lever this big U- I mean, PN at the time that, that Phil and I sort of stepped back from it? You know, it was over 120 people. How do we leverage this big organization with a minimum number of hours to really do better things? Not just, on oh, I'm compromised now. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm handicapped because I have this family. No, no. no. The family is actually the superpower, Mm. because I'm not wasting time on stupid shit anymore. (laughs) I'm doing the most important things now. You know what I mean? So it's not a liability. It's the superpower. So that's one, you know, um, the other thing is really uh, you know, I I grew up with a chip on my shoulder and trying to be a control freak, you know, (laughs) things had to go my way and, you know, whatever. and, And that's really, um, slowly being bred out of me, you know, the chip on the shoulder thing. I realized I, when I walk around with a chip on my shoulder, I'm not as nice of a guy Mm. you know, and I have less empathy because I'm thinking about the grievances, even subconsciously. Mm. And you can set that down. Then you can really be a present, compassionate parent, you know? Mm. Um, and, um, and then, you know, the, uh, the, And then the control thing, you know, is, 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 again, I mentioned sort of Eastern philosophy and, and I, I I try and pick and choose ideas from all the places where I think good ideas can come from, but their ideas of sort of equanimity, you know, this idea of sort of uh, not just intellectually understanding, but doing being, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, the kind of person who, uh, when feeling anger can say, The part of me that notices anger doesn't feel anger, you know? Uh, So instead of, you know, sort of projecting my emotions onto my family life and interacting with them in that way, I can actually say, oh, yeah, there's a part of me that's not feeling annoyed, frustrated, impatient, angry right now. Uh, That's the observing part. And that part can come to the forefront now and be my best self in the moment if I let it. And again, uh, having young people that look up to you, um, that, uh, you feel responsible for help shaping, um, really forces that you're either going to figure that out or you're not. Mm -hmm. So those are some of the ways, you know, there's probably lots, and we could probably do two hours on this. I'm really (laughs) passionate about, uh, parenting, coaching, and educating young children. So uh, that, uh, uh, but I can leave it at there for now. (laughs)
0: <laughs> have to do a part two i guess on parenting yeah. <laughs> um well this has been a fabulous um actually longer than i expected it to go and probably uh, sorry for taking all your time i would leave it at my my last question is always you're going to perish from this earth at some point hopefully not for a long time how would you like to be remembered
1: yeah i mean um
0: So there's
1: the professional side, which is, you know, you've talked about your why a few times in our conversation, you know, and, and, and I've done a lot of work on that for myself. And, and again, I think it harkens back full circle to what we talked about earlier where I, uh, someone kind of changed, saved my life, you know? And, and so for me, I just realized, Hey, when I, I I always frame it this way, when I die or retire, (laughs) you know, um, I want like, I know I'm going to have worked hard. That's, that's bread in me. You know what I mean? That's what I saw growing up. I, I always knew I was going to work hard. So at a certain point when I asked the question, like, what will I work hard on that will, I will feel, um, will have mattered. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So if I'm going to put in all that effort, I'd love it to be towards something that I feel great about having worked towards. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why it's this, but it's, it's in this space of health and fitness and lifestyle change. And very specifically, I'd love to know that the professionals working in this space, that's something I did. And I don't need credit for it again. My ego needs have already been met. Mm-hmm. If I would just was involved in starting the snowball rolling down the hill and then I go die, <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That's fine. Um, but that the professionals in this space see the people that they work with differently. Mm-hmm. I feel great about that. if they see themselves differently and if they see their potential for having a career doing something they're really passionate about, um, making a real great difference, and then being able to provide for their family through the process um, differently, then I'll be super, super happy with my professional work um, that's that's really and I had the chance to test that recently. You know, it's, it's, it's great for this to be a cute little soundbite, but, you know, when I stepped back from PN, you know, I took a sabbatical and then towards the end of sabbatical, I just started forming a new company and Amanda was like, Hey, what are you up to? And Amanda's my wife. And I was uh, like, ah, hon, I don't know how you're going to feel about this, but I think (laughs) I have to start a new company. And she was like, oh, tell me about it, you know? And I'm like, listen, before we start, I need you to know, I don't want to do this. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I just, um, I, but I can't stop myself from doing it. And, you know, and that's the thing you brought up earlier, the Change Maker Academy thing, you know, it's, it's, it's my newest gig, which is um, really centered around, even in a bigger way, connecting with people who work in health and fitness and lifestyle change. Um, And helping them turn their passion for this into a powerful purpose and a successful career. And so, again, you know, I've long talked about my why and my purpose. And it's this thing about the field and people working in the field and seeing themselves and their clients differently. And then some days I ask myself, is that just the thing I say all the time now because I think it sounds good? Or is that really what's going on? Mm. And I'm like, oh, this is the test. I don't want a new company, <laughs> but, uh, but I can't stop myself from doing it. It's happening because this really is why, i uh, why I go to work each day, you mm-hmm. know? So that's, so that's, and again, um, to you, to your question, like I'd almost strip off the be remembered for part mm-hmm. ego needs have been met a long time ago. Don't remember me for it. I just want it to happen. You mm-hmm. know, that's, mm-hmm. that's, that's really it um and and that's on the professional side and 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 maybe we'll leave it at
0: that beautiful well sir thank you for taking uh more than an hour of your time and uh, and spending it with me and it's been very enlightening and uh, other than our little technical difficulties it's been uh, a pleasure so
1: Uh, no worries thanks for the great chat i appreciate the thoughtful questions the great listening Um, and the opportunity, you know, I don't know who's going to be listening or how many folks will be listening, but uh, whoever does take the time to listen. Thank you. Thanks for spending your time with us today. I, I appreciate it. And I hope you got some nuggets out of it.
0: Yeah. Thanks, John. Have a good day. You too. Thanks for joining us today on Leave Your Mark. I hope we've left a mark on you today. And we wish only that you pay it forward by sharing this story, taking the time to rate and comment on this podcast. Please follow us at Twitter at BuiltByScott and Instagram at King and become a member of this community at Scott G. Livingston on Facebook. Have a great day. Music by Cedric de Saint-Rome.